Good evening to everyone, and first of all, I want to say uh, thank you to the congregation here at Rice Road Church of Christ, the elders and the members for hosting this study, and a very heartfelt thank you for entrusting me uh, to be one of the speakers. I certainly hope that my study this evening meets the expectations and helps all of us in some way. When we talk about the topics of work or work ethic or laziness, we're not discussing any type of new topic. Now, I would suggest or I would assume that it's probably common for most generations as they get older to look at the oncoming generations and feel that those younger generations are woefully lacking in work ethic and are comparatively lazy. That's probably happened throughout the history of the world. But you know, slothfulness is not a new problem and hard work is not a new need. Work has been around from the beginning of time and slothfulness and laziness have been addressed throughout the entirety of the Bible. Now when it comes to working, laziness is not the only danger there is, as is typically the case with problems. There are multiple extremes that one can go to. And while laziness might be one of the extremes in the kind of work ethic area, the other end of the extreme might be what is called workaholism, or as it's been termed for this study. Now to address these topics in this study, I've been asked to consider three primary questions. First of all, concerning the individual in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, and this is in the context of providing for widows, but then another context perhaps there of providing for one's family, it said that a Christian who refuses to care for such members of his family is worse than an unbeliever. And the question is, does that mean that the church should withdraw fellowship from such individuals? The second question I've been asked to consider is, should a Christian take welfare, unemployment, or other government subsidies? And then thirdly, when we do reach a point of being, when do we reach a point of being a workaholic? We might ask, what is a workaholic? When do we reach that point? And if so, what do we do about that? Now to consider these questions and try and address them in some way, we're going to follow a simple outline. First of all, I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at what the Bible has to say about the nature of work and the nature of laziness. And this is going to be a very brief overview. You could probably spend multiple sermons talking about the biblical message concerning work and laziness and all of those various aspects. But we're going to do a very quick review of the Bible's message concerning work and laziness. And then we'll consider these questions by considering what the Bible has to say about the church disciplining laziness. And we'll ask that question about Christians and welfare and try and get a biblical answer, or framework at least, and then we'll address the issue of workaholism. Now before we dive into that study, there's at least two things that I want us to be wary of, or warnings, that when we address the topic, and especially these questions, I think we need to be very mindful of. First of all, we have to recognize that our goal is to define things biblically. When it comes to work ethic, there's a lot of variance in the way that people may say what is good work ethic, what is lazy, etc. For example, there may be individuals that work jobs that entail a great deal of physical labor. You know, farmers, construction workers, uh, other very laborious, hard jobs physically. Now, some of those men that may work very hard jobs in the middle of the heat of summer may not think of the man that sits in an air-conditioned office in his fancy suit as a hard worker. And they may think that that's lazy, but that's not a proper way of defining laziness or work ethic based on the type of work. Also, our own problems may cause us to misdefine things. I would imagine that a lazy person is going to define almost anybody that's a hard worker as a workaholic. 
And on the other end of the spectrum, a person who is a workaholic is probably going to assume that just about anybody that doesn't work like he does as lazy. And yet those are unfair accusations. And even culturally, things change. You know, the standard work week in America may be very different than in other countries. Even in our own country, what has been considered a standard workload has changed and has had nuance over time. And so we have to, if we're going to navigate this topic, we have to be willing to check our own definitions and backgrounds and predispositions and ensure we are defining things and approaching things biblically. And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, is as we're trying to define things biblically and take a biblical view, we have to avoid being shaped by political ideologies. This is especially true when we get to questions concerning welfare and those types of issues. In our country, the welfare system and uh, government programs have become an, an incredibly divisive issue. And the sides, whether they be two or multiple, do not seem to be coming together. They seem to be growing further apart. And as we may identify with one group or another group, it's very easy to let our opinions about these things or our views be shaped as much by political ideology and rhetoric as it is by the Bible. And we must avoid that. We're not looking for the Republican platform or the Democratic platform or any political platform to answer these questions. We are looking for God's Word as we're trying to guide these issues. And so with those warnings in mind, let's consider just for a moment the Bible and work. Now many people have a very low view of work. In fact, I think Mark Twain once said that work is a necessary evil that is to be avoided. And a lot of people take that view. It's something they despise, they hate, and many people go to the extreme of trying to avoid work at all costs. Now, some have a strong work ethic, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have a positive view of work. I think there are a lot of people in America right now that are working very, very hard, but they are working very hard because they want to make as much money as they can so that as early as they can, they can retire and be done with work entirely. Because they hate work and they don't like work and they don't see the value of work. They see why they need to do it and so they will. But that's not necessarily a good view of work. And yet the Bible has a very different view of work. In fact, the overall tenor of the Bible's message concerning work is a positive one. And none, that is nowhere clearer than the fact that God is a worker. In fact, the opening pages of the Bible are God's work. We're introduced to God working. In Genesis 2 verse 2, creation is called the work of God. And so He is a worker. And throughout scriptures, we see many pictures, and we won't go through all of these for time's sake, but we see many pictures throughout the scriptures where God is likened to some type of profession or worker. And that helps us understand and know a little bit about God and how He works. He's frequently said to be working. And so our Creator, our God, our Father, whom we are supposed to be like, is a worker. So that shows us that work is a very positive thing. And thus it shouldn't uh, surprise us that work is designed by God. Now many people have a view that work is the result of sin. It's part of the curse, part of the fall. But that is not accurate. Work is not brought about because of the curse. Because as created beings and created in the image of God, humanity was created and designed to be workers like their heavenly Father whose image they bear. In Genesis 2 verse 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now the nature of that work, 
may have been and was different than the nature of work after the fall. I think it's Ron Corder who I've heard say that sin didn't bring about work. Sin just took the fun out of work. And that might be a good way of looking at it. But man was initially designed to be a worker. And when you look throughout the Scripture, especially we could look at a lot of Old Testament, but just a, a sample of passages in the New Testament, Christians are commanded, this is to servants, not just employees, but even servants, are to obey their masters and work heartily in Colossians 3. We're commanded to live quietly and work with our hands in 1 Thessalonians 4. Also to labor and do honest labor with our hands in Ephesians 4. And labor is even legislated from the other side of the view. Those who employ others or are over others, um, masters are admonished to be just and fair in Colossians 4. Exploitation and withholding payment from workers is condemned in James 5. And so the Bible legislates work so that it is good and right. And this is, to me, just interesting, a simple point. But when you think about the most prominent men of the New Testament, the most important men, Jesus, our Lord, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, we know their work. We know their simple occupation. We, we're told, why does it matter that Jesus was a carpenter? I don't want to read too much into that fact, but why do we know that Peter and John were fishermen and Paul was a tent maker and Luke was a physician? Why do we know those seemingly unimportant facts? Well, at the basest reason, or the simplest reason, it would seem that it helps us understand that work is not demeaning. It's not beneath God's people. In fact, the greatest examples we have in the Bible are workers. And so, work is a very positive and a good thing. Now, on the other hand, while the Bible portrays work positively, it also has a great deal to say about laziness. Now, and slothfulness. Now, as far as I'm aware, and if I'm wrong on this, please bring it to my attention, but I can't think of, I wasn't able to think of, a positive example of laziness in the Bible. We see a lot of positive examples of workers, but I don't know of an instance when laziness was good and right and exemplified as such. Proverbs in the wisdom literature has much to say, and especially Proverbs warning against sluggards and slothfulness. In the Lord's parable of the talents, the one-talent man is condemned, and we often talk about why that one-talent man was condemned and what was so bad and evil. But I think Jesus gives us one of the hints. When the Master rebukes him, he condemns him as a wicked and slothful servant. Why did he bury his talent in the ground? It seems to be one of the main reasons was he was lazy. And that's why he was condemned. He did nothing out of laziness. When Paul quotes the Cretan prophet in Titus 1 verse 12 and 13, and this Cretan prophet had said of his own people, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul seemed to agree with that uh, attitude and that assessment. And so he exhorted Titus to thus rebuke them sharply. And so just a very quick look at those things shows us that work is good, it is positive, it can be and should be. Laziness is a bad thing. Laziness is something that should not be a part. Laziness should never define a child of God. So that brings us to our first question and the issue of, so at what point is the church supposed to discipline laziness? What does the church do if there is a Christian who is lazy? How does the church handle that? And more to the point, is there a time when the church must practice formal discipline or, as we say, withdraw fellowship against a lazy Christian. Now here, again, is where we have to remember those warnings. We have to be careful. 
about how we define laziness and why we would practice discipline against such a person. Again, we may define things differently. A man, one man might work 60 plus hours at a very uh, demanding job every week. And so he may view another brother in the congregation that for whatever reason has a part-time job or only works 40 hours a week. He may view that man as lazier than himself. That is certainly not a reason to discipline that individual. Or what is also very common, and I think we probably all deal with this in one area or another if we're honest, is most people are lazy somewhere. There are some people that are very hard workers in one area of their life, but in another area they are lazy. For example, a man may work very hard at his job, whatever that may be, but when it comes to taking care of himself or exercising or doing anything physical, he may be very lazy. Or another person, and I won't say if I'm guilty of this or not, may work hard in some areas, but they may despise yard work. And you might look at his yard, and it goes too long between mowings, and it's not weed-eated as well as you would keep up your yard. And you might think, that man's lazy. He's lazy when it comes to keeping up his yard. Well, should we disfellowship a brother because when it comes to yard work, he doesn't have the same work ethic that we do or some other brother does and there may be many of those sort of things now we may be able there may be times we need to admonish a brother maybe a brother or sister is a a, um, a student and they're lazy in their work and we see that could become a bad habit and a problem and as titus was told to do you admonish them and you teach them the importance of hard work and overcoming laziness but that doesn't mean that we jump to church discipline but when a person's slothfulness causes certain problems and the church might be required to take action. And there's two passages, two primary passages in the New Testament that help us with this. The first, of course, is the one that we're asked about in 1 Timothy 5, particularly verse 8. Now in this passage, we need to remember the context. Paul is dealing with honoring or supporting widows. And he's qualifying what, which widows are able to be supported by the church, how we can ensure that she's qualified to be supported, um, and the church's responsibility to support a widow when she meets those qualifications. And when there is a widow who is in need, and uh, the church is then expected to support her if there is a need. Now while the church can and should take care of qualified widows, Paul makes it clear that if a widow has a family, it is their responsibility first. And he speaks positively about this, uh, this need or this responsibility in verse 4. And then a few verses later, he returns to the family responsibility, but he takes a negative view and warns against it. He says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, when we apply this passage, we need to be careful and we need to consider the full context. It is easy for us to go to 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. We read that passage and the first thing we come away with is if a man doesn't have a job and is not supporting his family, he is worse than an unbeliever. Now that may be true and that may fit in this passage, but let's not overlook the context and the full meaning of this verse. First of all, remember the context is dealing with caring for widows. And I think that's important because this indicates that we are responsible when it comes to provision for family. We are actually responsible for more than just providing a paycheck for our wives 
and our children. Now we have a responsibility to care for our immediate families. And I think Paul's language is clear. He in fact talks about his relatives, which seems to be an extended amount of family, because he then notices especially the members of his household. So we have a first and a primary responsibility to provide for the members of our immediate family. And that Greek word provide means to look after, take care of, and see to. It refers to the foresight and the action that is required to recognize and take care of needs. And we are to do this for our families. That is a command of Scripture that we are to do that for our families. But it doesn't just apply to our immediate families. There may be reasons and opportunities where we need to care for even further relatives than just in our immediate home, such as caring for a widow, perhaps our mother or our mother-in-law. Now when a Christian refuses to do this, Paul uses the strongest terminology you can imagine to condemn them. He says, first of all, that such an individual has denied the faith. Now that Greek word, deny, can mean to disclaim, disown, or renounce. Now Paul's not saying that they have just given up on Christianity. I don't think most people would do that. But he is saying that for all practical intents and purposes, it's as if they've done that. When a person refuses to care for and provide for their family then they have practically renounced their faith. And that shouldn't be a surprise. After all, James tells us in James 1.27 that part, a big part of pure and undefiled religion is to care for orphans and widows. And that's a general statement. That's not a familial statement. That's just generally. Now if part of just pure religion is caring for orphans and widows, then how bad is it if we don't even care for our own widows and our families? Yes, it's as if we've denied the faith. And Paul says that he is worse than an unbeliever. Even people in the world tend to take care of the needs of their families. Now I know there are a lot of people in the world that don't. We see this, and I'm sure in Paul's day there were evil people that didn't. But by and large, even the world understands their responsibility for taking care of family members and even those in need like widows within their family. So when God's children who are or are supposed to be enlightened by His Word, choose to live beneath the standards of unrepentant sinners. That is a terrible shame. So, should such an individual be disciplined by the church? Well, it's kind of a, a strange question in the passage, simply because that's not in Paul's view. Paul's not talking about church discipline here. But there are a couple of indications that I think we can make an appropriate inference. First of all, we must ask, should a person who persists in behavior that is tantamount to renouncing their faith and behaves worse than worldly people be accepted without discipline from the church? And I think that's a pretty easy answer, no. If we see an individual who persists in behaving in a way that is tantamount to renouncing their faith and worse than your general world's population, and they are not giving that up, then that requires church discipline. And Paul's second description helps us as well because there is another time in the New Testament when an individual is compared to the world and the world standards. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church because in their midst was a case of sexual immorality that he says would not even be tolerated among pagans. And Paul's instructions to the church there was that sinning brother was to be disciplined by the church. Now, don't take this too far. I'm not saying that a, the church can tolerate immorality or any other sin so long as it's acceptable to the world. That's not what Paul's saying or the scriptures are saying. But when there are cases in the church where even the world understands this is not right and this is not acceptable, then the church has to take action. The church has to discipline that 
brother or that sister and take care of that issue. Now, I want to make another point about this because, again, usually we apply this passage to individuals who are not working and thus can't provide for their families. And I think that may fall under the purview here. But I don't think that's really Paul's primary point. I think Paul's talking to Christians who can provide, probably are working, and they have the financial means to do so, and they reject to do so anyways. Think of the Pharisees that Jesus condemned for not honoring their fathers and mothers. It wasn't because they were lazy, or they didn't have jobs, or they were bums. They were probably very hard workers, very studious in many ways. They were probably wealthy and financially secure, but they were covetous and they denied their responsibility to take care of their family members. Now we immediately think of the individual who is not providing for his family because he doesn't have a job and won't work. But what is probably more often the case is when people are not taking care of their families, maybe extended families, even though they have the ability to do so. We need to be very cautious of that. And as Christians, we should never fall into that category. But also 2 Thessalonians 3 helps us address this issue. And so I that wasn't asked about this, but I want to add it because it's a very important passage in this discussion. It seems that Paul had to deal with the issue of the importance of Christians working with the Thessalonians. Now the Thessalonians were not bad Christians. They were, Paul exhorts them highly throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He brags on them in many, many ways. They seem to be very good Christians, but this was one of the issues that kept coming up again and again. Uh, he, he had to tell them, work with your hands. And there in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 11 and 12, he says, as I instructed when I was with you. And so Paul instructed in person that they were to work with their hands. And he saw fit to remind them of it in his letter the first time he wrote. And he even says, apparently he knows there are still some idle. And so a third time he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, So admonish the idle. So they've been told in person, they've been told in Paul's writing, and these idle individuals have been told to be admonished by the congregation. But by the time Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, there apparently were still some that hadn't gotten the hint and were still idle. And so Paul writes uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, and addresses this situation, and Paul has been very patient. That's maybe something we can talk about. This is a situation that requires patience. I don't think the church just jumps to withdraw fellowship from an individual that's in this situation, but there's patience, there's admonition, but it gets to a point where Paul says, I command you to avoid this person. Now, we're not going to do an in-depth exposition since this isn't really our focus text, but I just want to bring out a few points. First of all, idleness is not in accordance with the traditions or the commands of the apostles, according to verse 9. When we are idle and we refuse to work, we are not living in accordance with the commands and the traditions of God. Also, when a brother persisted, he walked in idleness, Paul commanded them to be avoided. That is a command. When it gets to a point that a brother or sister will not do what they should do, it is a command. And our bleeding hearts, as well as well-intentioned as they may be, at a certain point, if we continue to enable an individual, we are not helping them. If they have the ability, Paul commands that that help stop and those people be avoided. Paul reiterates something that he taught in person. He says, if a person isn't willing to work, then they do not eat. Now, we need to note here the factor of willingness. Paul is not speaking about people who cannot work. 
He's not talking about disabled people. He's not talking about widows that have no ability. He is talking about people that can work, but they refuse to do so. Now, why they were unwilling, Paul doesn't talk about. Commentators speculate it was some over-realized eschatology or view. Some think it was just laziness. Paul doesn't say why they weren't willing to work. But the thing is, it doesn't matter why they weren't willing to work. They weren't working. And that was the problem. It also appears that these idlers weren't just not working, but somehow they were disruptive. They were busy. They actually were busy. The problem was they were busy bodies. They were idlers that were disrupting in some way the peace of the congregation. So Paul also encouraged the idlers to work. That's again a command that they work and earn their own living. And also, when he is disciplined, Paul says that they may be ashamed. I don't think it's a far stretch to say and to infer from that that when we refuse to work, that is shameful. And I don't say that to embarrass people, but it's a truth. There are things that we should be ashamed of and laziness and idleness is something that is a shame for God's people. But also the church is to appropriately discipline such individuals, but they are to do so out of brotherly love, not out of annoyance, not out of animosity, Sometimes when we deal with people that are needy and people that are continuously asking and it's because they're lazy or whatever the reason is and they're not working, we can get annoyed and we get frustrated. And so we deal with the situation from frustration. But Paul has admonished the brethren to not grow weary in doing well. He has encouraged them to be patient with all and he is reminding them that they are to do this out of love for their brother. Because that's what's important for their welfare. Now, speaking of welfare, to turn that phrase, what about the Christian and a different type of welfare? Now, to address the question, I think we need to ask, first of all, what is welfare? A simple definition is just receiving government financial assistance for basic material needs. But also, what does the Bible teach or illustrate about the concept of welfare? And I think that in both the Old and New Testaments, we actually see at least the principle of welfare, maybe not the American welfare system as it's implemented, but we see the principle of welfare among God's people. Now, both the Old and New Testaments reiterate that there will always be poverty. As noble as it may sound for groups or committees or institutions to say that their goal is to eradicate poverty, it will not happen. And I don't say that harshly, it's just a fact of this fallen world. It was recognized even for God's chosen people. Even when Israel was doing what was right and they were to be blessed, God says there will always be the poor among you. And Jesus reiterates that. He says the poor you have with you always. There will always be poverty for one reason or another in this world. But the scriptures don't stop there. And that is not an excuse for us to turn a blind eye just because poverty always will exist this side of eternity. Instead, Scripture calls God's people to be generous helpers because there will always be poverty. Now in the Old Testament, we have to go through this quickly, but there were several provisions to assist the poor and the needy. For example, part of Israel's tithing every three years of the produce of the land was to be brought out and to be given to the Levites who didn't have their own inheritance and to those like the widows and the uh, sojourners, the needy, the fatherless. So part of what the Israelites were tithing was set aside and then every three years they brought this out and it was to help those 
who were in need. Of course, there is the law we're probably more familiar with in the Old Testament concerning the harvesting of fields. When a landowner went to have his fields harvest, harvested, he wasn't supposed to reap all the way up to the edge. And also as his workers went through, there were undoubtedly things that would drop. There would be uh, maybe clusters of grapes or sheaves of wheat that would drop. And they weren't supposed to send those men back through and pick up everything that they had dropped. Now that would be a good business practice to maximize your profits. But God said, you don't do that. You go through and you gather. You leave the edges of your fields. You leave these uh, gleanings. Why? So that those who are in need can come through and they can have what they need. Now there's something interesting in this law. In fact, in these two laws, we see two different types of provision. There were times for those like orphans and widows where assistance was simply given. They didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to work for it. Their circumstances called for them to just be given what they were needed. But then there were other circumstances where those who were in need, but they could do something. You see, the law didn't require the harvester to then go back through and get the edges of his field and go pick up his gleanings and take it to those who were in need. He was to allow those who were in need to come and work in the fields. Now, that wasn't easy work. That was work. And it was probably hard sometimes working through the heat of the day, but they could do what they could. Think of the beautiful story of Ruth. Now, Naomi, as an older widow, was not the one out there working in the fields. But Ruth had a work ethic. They were in need. But she went and did what she could and she worked. Now, Boaz was incredibly generous. But do you ever realize, have you thought, that Boaz never said to her to stop working the fields? Now, he gave her an abundance and he gave her more than she could have asked for. But he didn't take away from her the opportunity to work. And I think that's an important principle in the scriptures. Also, every seven years, creditors were to release what was lent according to Deuteronomy 15. This was designed to help alleviate the poor and give them the ability to restart without being crushed in debt. Now, when the law demanded, when an Israelite, for whatever, for certain reasons, became impoverished, his brethren were to help him. And they were to lend him what he needed. Now, they were not to charge interest. And it seems that there, it was okay to be paid back because it was lent but they didn't charge interest. But every seven years, whatever was still owed, that was wiped clean. And the law specifically stated that if you had the misfortune of having a neighbor that went into need and needed you to loan him something, and it's only six months until the year of release, you don't have a bad attitude and think, oh man, I'll never get paid back for that. The law called the Israelites to open their hands wide and give to their needy brethren. There were many rebukes that were levied against Israel and Judah, the prophets, throughout the prophets that had to do with negligence when it came to caring for the needy. And now when you think about the old law and it's a theocracy, politics and faith went hand in hand in that system. The government was run by the law of Moses, so caring for the needy was the responsibility of individuals, but it was also the responsibility of the government, of God's people, to see to the needs of of those who were destitute. But also under the new covenant, God's people are no longer a theocracy, but we can exist in and under any government, truly. Now, governments are probably not going to abide by Scripture. They would do well to do so, but they'll make up their own laws and legislate in their own ways. And some governments are going to offer no assistance to the needy. Some governments are going to offer a great deal of assistance to the needy. What the government chooses to do is not really what's important to us. But in the New Testament, we do see that caring for the needy is still important to God. 
And caring for orphans and widows is declared by James again to be a part of pure and undefiled religion. Jesus taught that we are to give to those in need. He says, give to the one who begs from you. As he teaches about the attitudes of giving, he doesn't say, if you give to the needy. In his Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you give to the needy. Paul mentions that one of the purposes of work is to share with anyone who has need. And we see great examples of what you might call welfare in a, in a sense in the early church in Acts 4 and also in Acts chapter 2 where Christians were selling their own possessions and belongings and distributing those proceeds to, the, to all as any had need. Now, there were some dire, dire circumstances. They were probably facing persecution, uh, being outcasts as they turned to this new faith. But the key is, as God's people had needs... God's people also did anything that they could to meet those needs. You know what that is? That's welfare. That's taking what maybe I've worked for and I've earned by my own labor and I am freely giving it to someone else. Now I know we don't like it when it's the government that's doing that, but Christians are to have an attitude that are willing to do that for those that are in need. So what's the answer to the question about welfare? Well, I think the Bible has shown us that it's not wrong for someone to get help when they are in need, whether they have an immediate short-term need or whether like an orphan or a widow, they may have a longer-term need. They are to be allowed to be provided for. We shouldn't withhold help and we shouldn't judge those who need help. But what about government welfare? Can the Christian accept that? Well, let's ask a couple of questions. Maybe if you want to, we can go into this more in, in the questions. But is it right for the governments to help needy? Is that even part of their job? Well, the New Testament governs the church, but God is the sovereign ruler of all nations. And the tenor of scriptures would indicate that when governments neglect or worse, oppress and exploit the poor, they anger God. Therefore, it would seem good and right that governments do something to provide for the needy. Now, we may have problems with how this is done. We may think that we can criticize the system that a country employs. But we cannot say, I believe, that government, it's wrong for them to offer assistance to people. Now, is it wrong for the Christian to accept that assistance? Again, we've already seen that those who are in need may be helped and they should be able to be helped. We've seen the principle of Scripture that it is, as I've just mentioned, that it's good for governments to help those under their care. I think the New Testament shows us as Paul exercises some of his rights as a Roman citizen, we have rights as citizens that we can avail ourselves of. That doesn't give us the right to contradict God's law. But we can avail ourselves of certain rights. And so, yes... It is right and acceptable for those who are in need, even as Christians, to avail themselves of the opportunities their government may provide. And I want to say that we need to be uh, consistent when we talk about this issue. Some people might say, well, it's not the government's job, it's the church's job to care for the needy. Well, that may sound big and bold, but are you ready to actually back that up? Can a congregation help support a brother who's lost his job? for maybe an extended period of time, the way the government program is? Can we actually back some of those statements up? Do we apply that reasoning elsewhere? For example, is it wrong for a Christian to accept tax credits? There's probably several of us in here that enjoy the benefit of child tax credits that, let's be honest, we didn't do any work for. But the government gives us that benefit. Are we supposed to deny that tax credit? When we file our taxes, is it wrong for our older brothers and sisters 
to deny Medicare and that government-assisted program that provides them some needed health insurance? Is it wrong if a Christian lives so long into their retirement that they receive more in Social Security payments than what they paid into the system? You see, sometimes we apply a logic in one area and we don't follow it to its logical conclusion. We need to be consistent. So yes, I think Christians can, in the right circumstance, if they need the help, receive that assistance. Now, the real concern with the welfare system, if we're honest, is abuse. We're concerned about the abuse of the government. And yes, if a government runs a program that basically enables or causes dependence, or even worse, actually ensnares people in perpetual poverty, that's a problem. And we may rightly say, we may think that's what our system does. But I don't think those problems are such that the Christian can't overcome it. I think an honest person, and a Christian should be honest, can avoid those pitfalls. But second, there are people that abuse the system. Are there people that are just lazy and would prefer a government handout? Yes, there are. Are there people that claim disability when they actually have the ability to work? Of course there are. Are there people that have developed a sense of entitlement and feel that they are owed government assistance? Absolutely. How widespread those problems actually are, I don't know. I don't know if we can even quantify them. But for a Christian, those questions are irrelevant because a Christian should not abuse the system. Now, yes, if a Christian is refusing to work, then they are denying when they can. And they're denying the command of Scripture to work for yourself, to work with your own hands. So if a Christian is using some government system out of laziness, then that is wrong. But when a Christian has a need, be it unemployment because they've lost a job, we had many brethren, there may be brethren here that I don't know about, that when COVID happened, they lost their jobs, not because they were bad employees, not because they were lazy, because a lot of companies had knee-jerk reactions and just started laying people off. And one of the lifelines those brethren had was government unemployment programs that helped them through. Now, you may, if you want to have the political debate about what our country did, that's up to you if you want to have that debate. But it was available to those brethren. It helped those brethren. There are people that have been sick that are in need, and that's good that they have that assistance. We should be thankful for that assistance. Now, we only have eight minutes and four seconds left to talk about workaholism. And in some ways, that I feel bad about that. I wanted to answer the questions, but I'm just going to, I'm going off script a little bit here. But honestly, I think, this is my opinion, I think this is probably the bigger danger to the church. I think there are probably situations in many congregations where we may have to work with people that uh, for whatever reason, may be lazy. They may be slothful. They may be in the situation of taking welfare or unemployment when they shouldn't. But I think we typically see those situations for what they are and we try and address them. But I think this situation is not addressed the way it ought to be. Now, workaholism is viewed by some psychologists as an actual condition, an actual addiction. I'm not going to, I don't want to get into that. I'm not worried about that tonight. I'm going to approach workaholism simply as, is it possible to work too much? Can we work too much? And my simple answer to that is yes. Especially when we're talking about secular carnal work. Now work is good. We've, I hope I've established that. Work can be good. But like many things that are good, they can be abused. And whenever work begins to hinder or endanger our spiritual welfare, we have a problem. We could talk about a lot of the problems of what we might call workaholism, but I'm just going to very quickly talk about three. First of all, 
workaholism or working too much may be a sign of another problem like greed or covetousness. Now our culture has developed the concept of the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can have anything you want. And there are masses of Americans and probably other cultures that are working tirelessly in the pursuit of more. More money, more stuff, more recognition, more power, just more. Work is good, but when it is motivated because of greed, that's dangerous. It's especially dangerous because we're covering up something sinful and bad like greed with something that looks good like work. We assure ourselves, I'm not greedy. I'm just a hard worker. I'm not materialistic. I've just really labored. I've been diligent, so I'm enjoying the fruits of my labor. But ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, why do we push for high-income jobs? Why do we push for higher education? High-income jobs are not evil. Higher, higher education is not evil. I'm not saying it's sinful. But if that is our focus, if that's what we want for ourselves and our children first, we have a problem. We are carnal and we are worldly if we're more concerned about getting the education and the job and then hoping they stay faithful as our children. Now we'll dress it all up and talk about being studious and being hard workers. It's greed and it's covetousness and it's worldliness. And we have to be careful about that. Maybe if we really honestly reviewed our attitudes about work, it might not reveal a godly work ethic. It might reveal a covetous heart. And closely related to that is the problem of idolatry. Many people make idols out of their careers or their work. When I worked at the bank in the secular field, I worked with men that readily and happily admitted work was the number one thing in their life. Now one guy said golf was actually the first thing and work came second. But that's not a good thing. But that's the world. But I've seen Christians who would never verbalize that, but their actions say the exact same thing. Their career is the number one thing in their life. Whether that's because of greed or a desire for accomplishment or a hypersensitive view regarding work ethic, whenever our work takes priority over godliness, we have an idol and that is sinful. Work is good. God also requires us to love Him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole strength. And if our work, if our career hinders that command, then our work is no longer good and we have a problem. And perhaps most importantly to me, and this is where I wish we could almost talk for the whole time, but an, a workaholic is going to fail at leadership. I'm going to say a sentence here that may sound strange, but I hope it's accepted in the manner it's meant. Christians need a biblical work ethic, not an American work ethic. Over the years, and this is changing for some good reasons and some bad reasons, the ideal of the American husband and father's job has been to work hard and make a paycheck for his family. And there have been many men who have worked very hard and they've made lots of money and that's all they've done. And worst of all, they viewed themselves and others have viewed them as good, successful men, even in the church. And that's not all there is to it. When men... And I'm speaking to men mainly at this point, but this is true of women too. When our job takes up so much time that we don't have time to read the Bible for ourselves, more or less with our children, that is a problem. When we, have the oper when we spend so much time at work that we can't attend the assemblies of the saints 
We can't go to midweek services. We can't go to gospel meetings. We can't go to spend time with Christians. We have a problem. When we're so busy making money that we can't demonstrate to our kids what it means to give and serve, that is a problem. When we can network with the best of the professionals, but we can't spend time associating with God's people, that is a problem. And men especially, but anybody here, if that's you or if that's me, it's time to wake up. This world's work is not all there is. Now, as the head of the house, men, we have a job to provide for our family. But providing for our family does not mean just making a paycheck. We also provide not only physically, but emotionally and mentally and most of all spiritually. And when we focus so much on work that we do not have the energy to lead our families at home, then we have failed our families and we are not leading and we are not providing for them. And what is true of the family is true of the church. When we are too busy with secular work that we cannot be involved in the work of the local church, we have a serious problem. Our work has become an idol, it has become a distraction, and it needs to change. Now, I don't know how to, categor- how to categorize that. One man may be able to work 60 hours a week and still take care of his responsibilities. And another man may not. We have to be extremely and brutally honest with ourselves and we have to make the right decisions. And you know what? Those those decisions may be hard decisions. It may mean a demotion. It may mean a paycheck. It may mean changing careers. But you know what? If you lose your job or you lose your career, that is replaceable. may not be as fancy or as plush or as luxurious as you had, but it's replaceable. Your soul and the soul of your children, they are not. Do not let your job or your career endanger your soul and the souls of those precious children that God has blessed you with. Do not become a workaholic and lose your children. We've got 30 seconds left, so we'll just end with Colossians 3. I think this helps us strike the balance. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If we want to remember how to work, how to not be lazy, but how to not let work distract us, you just remember this, we're working for the Lord. And we spend every day remembering that's who we're serving and that's who we're working for. One second left. That's the only time in my life that's ever happened. (laughs)